Welcome to the Driving Dentistry Forward podcast, where successful dental pros and anyone who values the power of a smile can get an edge in the dynamic worlds of healthcare and business. Hosts Chuck Cohen and Rick Cohen speak with top influencers in the world of dentistry and explore essential tools, trends worth your time, and solutions that help you practice smarter. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Driving Dentistry Forward, Benco Dental's podcast with interesting leaders in dentistry, all focused on driving dentistry forward. Today, my guest is Dr. Ross Kerr, a professor of oral medicine at New York University and one of the leaders in the whole discipline of oral medicine. And in honor of Oral Cancer Awareness Month, we thought it would be great to reach out to Dr. Kerr and ask him a little bit about oral medicine, oral cancer, and how dental professionals can be better at spotting it and dealing with it in their practice. So welcome, Dr. Kerr. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Excellent. So um, I was hoping you could give us just two sentences on your background and really focus in on this idea of the discipline of oral medicine, which I think for most of our listeners would be probably something they may have heard of, but are a little unfamiliar with. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, So I am an oral medicine specialist um, at NYU College of Dentistry. I've been there for 25 years. And um, yes, what is an oral medicine specialist? Well, oral medicine is the specialty of dentistry. It recently became an official specialty through the American Dental Association about a year ago now. But it's the, the, the specialty of dentistry that's responsible for the oral health care of medically complex patients and for the diagnosis and management of medically related diseases, disorders, and conditions affecting the oral and maxillofacial region. I read that directly off the American Academy of Oral Medicine website because I wanted to make sure that I gave you the absolute accurate. But so my, what I do is I see patients with you know, oral mucosal diseases. So that includes oral cancer and what we call oral potentially malignant disorders. I take care of patients who have dry mouth. Uh, So I'm rather like the dermatologist to the lining of the inside of the mouth and have an expertise in the dental delivery for patients who have other medical conditions and medical uh, diseases. Cancer patients is one of my my favorite groups, uh, and orofacial pain, which is, you know, crossover with another specialty in dentistry, which is called orofacial pain. So that's what I do. There are about 250 of us in the United States and mainly in, you know, large cities and, and medical centers. Excellent. How did you get interested in this subspecialty of dentistry, especially because when you first got into it, it was not an official specialty? That's right. I mean, oral medicine has been around for a long time. The American Academy of Oral Medicine was founded in 1945. So it's been around for a long time. Um, You know, a lot of it is related to sort of uh, the politics of having additional, you know, specialties within dentistry. So that's part of it. But, you know, we've been a very active group for, for, you know, for a long time. So it's just, we finally you know, managed to get through the, uh, the application process along with, with some others. So that's great news. And I got interested in oral medicine when I was a dental student at McGill University. My mentor, Dr. Martin Tyler, 
who is an oral medicine specialist who he trained actually in the Navy and he was a very inspirational teacher. And he got me interested. He introduced me to one of his colleagues who uh, introduced me to the UW program, uh, the University of Washington um, oral medicine program. That's where I went and did my oral medicine training. I'd imagine that what you do is more on the science side of dentistry. I and mean, a lot of us think of this dentistry as sort of a continuum between art and science, art meaning how everyone looks and science meaning the actual scientific end of it. I would assume that the oral medicine specialty would be more on the scientific end of it. That must be fascinating to do research on and really look at on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm very much first and foremost a clinician. So, you know, I see patients, but yes, I do conduct research and there is a lot of uh, ongoing research in the area of oral medicine um, but yes so I'm an academic I'm you know I teach my students I'm trying to train the next generation of dentists we have at NYU approximately eight percent of all graduating dentists we have a class of about 400 so I mean when I look back on it it you know I've probably trained 10,000 dentists to go out and look for cancer. So that's an area that I feel, you know, very good about. Well, on behalf of the industry and the general population, thank you for, you know, serving in the dental research and dental education area. When we think of dentistry, we often think of the dentist around the corner, but the unsung heroes of dentistry, in my opinion, are the researchers and the professors who really find the new cures and find the new products and find how to you know, take better care of our oral health in America, as well as train the next generation of dentists. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so let's focus in a little bit on oral cancer awareness. Uh, it is Oral Cancer Awareness Month. And one of the things that I wanted to make sure everyone understood is there's more than one kind of oral cancer. And I was hoping you could walk us through that a little bit. Okay. So first of all, you know, what do we mean by oral cancer? So that typically the connotation is, is a cancer that grows within the oral cavity. Mm -hmm. So involving the tongue or the insides of the cheeks or the gums or um, the bones, you know, making up the, the structures of the mouth. But it also may include oropharynx cancer. And so the oropharynx is connected to the oral cavity. So essentially the oropharynx is the very back part of the mouth and it's the back side of the tongue. So the throat or the pharynx is made up of three um, structures, the oropharynx, the nasopharynx, which is above the oropharynx, that's essentially where the nasal passages go. And then the hypopharynx is below the oropharynx. And then below that is the larynx, which is also you know, technically part of the the throat. So um, in terms of all of these sites, the most common type of cancer is called a squamous cell carcinoma. And that essentially is a skin cancer of the lining mucosa of the oral cavity, the throat, and, you know, into the larynx. And so the cancers begin in that lining mucosa. Now, there are other types of cancers which make up less than 10% of all oral cancers. And these are things like salivary gland cancers. These are sarcomas, leukemias, lymphomas, 
mucosal melanomas, but they comprise, as I said, a very, very small fraction. So the ones that are mostly encountered by dentists or hygienists would be the squamous cell carcinoma. Gotcha. And just talk for a minute about, or a, a, a short time, about two things that I find fascinating. Number one is the amount of oral cancer and related oral cancers that are out there and how prevalent they are. And the second thing is how treatable these cancers are when they're caught early in the process. Okay, well, that's a great question. So in the United States, based on the data that is supplied by the National Cancer Institute, um, there are estimated this year to be approximately between 55 and 60,000 cases of oral and pharyngeal cancers. Mm -hmm. And about 25,000 of those are in the oral cavity proper, okay? Mm -hmm. And when you look at the statistics about what stage they are at, at the time of diagnosis, we see a relatively small proportion, you know, about a third of them are actually in early stage disease. And an early stage cancer is largely a cancer that is just in the primary location where it started. So let's say the most common site in the mouth is the tongue. And so let's say it's a tongue cancer. That means that it's a cancer that is small, you know, less than a certain dimension. And there are, you know, various different factors I'm not going to get into, as opposed to a more advanced cancer that has gone from the primary site that metastasizes into the regional lymph nodes in the neck, and then ultimately to distant organ systems. And they comprise two thirds of cancers. So advanced cancers are more common than early cancers. And when we look at you know, the stages, we see that patients with earlier cancers, smaller cancers in the primary site, they're more amenable to treatment. And those patients have better survival statistics than people who have advanced cancers. So, you know, it makes sense. You can't generalize it to everyone's cancers, but overall, if you have an earlier cancer, it's detected earlier, then most likely you're gonna survive longer if you get the treatment that you need. Now, one other thing that I should mention is that most, the majority of oral cavity cancers are preceded by these precancerous changes, um, which isn't a cancer yet. And these are known as oral potentially malignant disorders. So this is a group of diseases and the most common one is called leukoplakia. And every dentist has all heard of leukoplakia and often that term is misused because it really means white patch, okay? And a white patch can be attributed to any number of both benign and lesions with malignant potential, but it's the ones that have malignant potential that are classified as leukoplakias. And if you have a patient with a leukoplakia, there's a risk, albeit relatively small, that over time, if left unchecked, it could eventually transform into a cancer. 
Um, and one of the things I think you said that's so true is the earlier we catch any cancer in general, any cancer, the earlier it's caught, the easier it is to treat and certainly the less, the less dangerous it is for the patient. Um, and then the other thing is really not only is oral cancer, and I think we all know this, not only is oral cancer uh, very uh, too often leads to death, but uh, even if the person, the patient doesn't die, the potential, the life changes that come from advanced stage oral cancer are truly devastating. Right. So, you know, again, the estimates from, um, from the NCI and from the American Cancer Society suggest that about 11,000 people die of, you know, oral and oropharyngeal cancer and pharyngeal cancer every year. And you're right. There are thousands of survivors of oral cancer and oropharynx cancer and these patients, unfortunately, you know, can have high morbidity because of the diseases of the treatment for the disease. And the treatment for the disease can be, you know, disfiguring surgery that can impact the function of the head and neck area. It can also include radiation treatment that can have all kinds of complications, severe dry mouth, you know, fibrosis, where it's difficult to open the mouth up, you know, complications, dental complications because of the dry mouth and because of, you know, poor bone healing. And there are a whole host of different issues that these patients have to deal with for the rest of their lives. So, yes, it's impactful. And obviously, if you catch it early, not only do you get a better survival, but the morbidity is reduced. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what dentists and dental professionals like hygienists and assistants can do to be better at finding oral cancers or potential or precancers earlier and what they should do about it. So if you could share with us your thoughts on that, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. so everyone has heard of the concept of screening for cancer. And the, the concept of screening a general population, we don't have, you know, population screening programs for oral cancer as yet. There are some countries that have a higher burden of oral cancer where, you know, we're hoping that they will adopt screening, formal screening programs. Taiwan is one of them. Um, and it's possible that that will happen in India. But in the U.S., we rely on opportunistic screening by dentists, by hygienists, by trained physicians like ENTs. And so um, the best, you know, screening technique is a visual and tactile examination. And this is something that every dentist is trained to do. Any new patient, any recall patient, any emergency patient will come in and they'll perform an examination to look for any lymph nodes. They'll assess whether or not the patient has any asymmetries looking at them. And then they'll go inside the mouth and they'll not only examine the teeth and the gums, but they'll also examine all of the mucosal structures. It takes just a couple of minutes. You pull down the lips, you stick out the tongue, you look at every mucosal site. And that's how we detect any abnormal you know, finding that deviates what we would expect you know, in a normal healthy patient. And once we find something abnormal, then the next question is, well, what do we do next? And so there has to be some level of risk stratification. 
So you have to go, is this something we need to be worried about or is this something that is benign? And at the basic level for people who aren't really interested in getting more education, at the very least, you make that decision about whether or not to refer to a qualified person. And you take records and document and, you know, what you've seen and then move that patient on to, you know, to a, to a specialist. I would argue that dentists should be trained at a higher level because there aren't many oral medicine specialists. I guess you could argue there are plenty of oral surgeons. There are plenty of, you know, more oral pathologists and other people that have had training in this area. But I would argue that dentists can, you know, get trained, you know, beyond dental school to be able to differentiate between something with malignant potential or something that is that is benign. So um, are there certain patients who are more likely to be candidates for oral cancer? Are there certain behaviors that make them more likely to be precancerous or have lesions in their mouth that they should be more, doctors should be more aware of? Absolutely. And so in addition to performing a visual and tactile examination, it's important to ask about the known risk factors for oral cancer and oral potential malignant disorders. And so we know there's very good epidemiologic evidence to support that tobacco of any form, but in the United States, most people, you know, smoke tobacco or there are parts of the US where they chew tobacco. In other parts of the world, they use it, you know, differently, and they use other products that have the potential to cause oral cancer. And so depending where you are in the United States, you may have ethnic groups, let's say from Southeast Asia, who chew the areca nut, that's often referred to as the betel nut, that's another risk factor. So tobacco, alcohol, um, particularly if you are a heavy alcohol user and you combine it with tobacco products where the effect is multiplicative. Um, and then poor diet is an established risk factor. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that, you know, also poor, you know, oral health may set things up as well. And then in the area, and we haven't broached this yet, but in the area of oropharynx cancer, there's a very distinct risk factor, which is HPV, which is the human papillomavirus. And that, of course, is linked to sexual habits and exposure to that virus through sexual contacts. So people who have multiple sexual you know, encounters or practice you know, oral sex, um, they may be at a heightened risk for developing the disease. Now, having said that, there are many patients that I have seen, and, and it's a small, relatively small piece of the pie, who have absolutely no risk factors whatsoever. So I have a group of women in their 30s who've come to see me with tongue cancer. So it's not exclusively going to be discovered in patients who have these known risk factors. And so it's very important that everyone, you know, undergoes a careful history and a careful, you know, visual and tactile examination. How can a doctor or dental professional do a visual examination of the areas behind the tongue? 
I mean, I'd imagine the farther you go back, the harder it is to see what's going on and you're not gonna stick your fingers down and you get a gag. So what, what does a dentist do to test for, to, yeah. to screen for that? Right, so very good question. We actually do not have established screening parameters for oropharynx cancer, right. which is a sad state. Um, I worked on a very preliminary feasibility study to do saliva detection of HPV. And that may be a very crude way of screening people for you know, HPV infection. The problem is, is that at any given moment, 1% of the population who submitted a, a mouth sample would be positive for HPV 16, which is the most common oncogenic subtype of HPV. Well, clearly, if there are only 15,000 cases of HPV positive oropharynx cancer in the United States each year, it, not everyone who gets infected with HPV goes on to develop the cancer. So it requires multiple exposures and other factors that cause a persistent infection to occur. And slowly over many years, ultimately it transforms to a cancer. But to answer your question, it's difficult to evaluate that part of the mouth. But I will say that the most common presenting signs and symptoms of someone that has oropharynx cancer is actually a lump in their neck. So more than 50% of patients who present with a lump in their neck, which is essentially a lymph node that is involved, that leads to further follow-up and then imaging will show that that patient has a cancer in many cases, not in all cases, and the places where the HPV likes to grow and cause cancer are in the tonsillar tissues. So many people like myself had a ton the palatine tonsil removed when I was young, but there are also tonsils at the backside of the tongue. So when you stick your tongue all the way out where it dives back, that's known as the base of tongue or the posterior third of the tongue that contains lymphoid tonsillar tissue. And that's one of the two places where oropharynx cancers can occur. So sometimes patients will experience changes in their ability to swallow or pain when swallowing, but not everyone. Some people will be completely asymptomatic in that area. And, but there's a small cancer brewing. They just haven't noticed it because it's happened over such a long time. So we don't have ways of screening this region as yet. Um, and what are some tips that you might give to a general dentist or a hygienist about how to find the right professional in their area? Is it always the oral surgeon uh, to be referring these cases to, or are there others who might be the right, right candidate in, in, the, in a small town, let's say, or even in a bigger town? Yeah. So I think, you know, there are, I, I can't remember how many oral surgeons there are in the United States. It's more than 10,000, mm -hmm. right? There are 250 oral medicine specialists. Look, if you're in a, in a small town, you know, you're going to either refer to the physician or you're going to refer to the oral surgeon. I think those would be the appropriate places to go. If you're in a large center, you want to go to, you know, ideally an academic center. Mm -hmm. And the types of referrals, let's talk about, I didn't talk much about the signs and symptoms of what goes on with oral cavity cancers, 
talked about oropharynx, but oral cavity cancers can be a white patch, can be a red patch in the mouth, can be a red and white patch, can be a solitary ulceration, can be a little small growth. And the question is, is there are lots of things that can ca cause growths. There are lots of things that can cause ulcers in the mouth. And there are lots of things that can cause red and white changes. So it's these changes where the dentist or the hygienist looks at it and they scratch their head. They go, that doesn't seem to be a canker sore. That doesn't seem to be a traumatic type lesion of someone biting their, you know, their tongue or biting their cheek. And so they've got to make that risk assessment. But that oral cancers and oral potentially malignant disorders have very variable presentations. And so dentists have to realize that there is a spectrum of what is a suspicious looking change in the mouth. And if they're not clear and their threshold you know, is low, then they refer. If they're a little bit more sophisticated because they've had extra training or because they have taken an interest, their threshold is a little bit higher. So one of the things, and you and I talked about this for a few minutes before we started, is the problem of the false positive. And I think there's a lot of dentists out there who are, um, it's easier to say nothing, even when they think they may have found something, than it is to actually refer the, the patient out to the oral surgeon. Can you give us some, some ideas on how a general dentist should think about the false positive? Right, right. So it is true that, um, you know, because there's so much that goes on in the mouth, you know, there are lots of reasons why someone can have a white area in their mouth. And most of the reasons for that is because of what we call frictional keratosis. In other words, it's rubbing that area. Maybe there's something that's rubbing a sharp tooth is rubbing against an area. Um, it could be related to other habits that they're performing in the mouth. And you're right. I mean, I, differentiating you know, between something, most of the lesions that are seen in the mouth are going to be largely benign, or if they have malignant potential, they have a relatively small chance of turning into a malignancy over time. So there's a very small group of lesions that are either early cancers or they're pre-cancers that are likely to turn into a cancer. And so the problem is, is a lot of noise at the lower end. And so, you know, one of the things that can be done is that cancers and high grade lesions that aren't cancers, but are likely to turn into cancer are not likely to regress. Some do, but a very small fraction do. Usually they're gonna be persistent and they're going to be progressive. So if they want one thing they can do is they can say to the patient, well, I think this may be because you're rubbing your tongue or your mouth is a little dry and you're more prone to developing these little white patches, let's try and smooth off that tooth and bring the patient back after a couple of weeks or three weeks to see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so that's one way that you can have the patient come back and follow them. And if it's still persistent, then you can move them on. The other thing would be, wouldn't it be great if we had some type of test that would allow us very easily and give us immediate gratification that we could do in the office itself 
that would allow us to risk stratify using technology. The best technology out there is actually cytopathology. So collecting cells with a brush. So you collect those cells and all of the platforms in the United States currently are, you have to send out those cells to a lab and then they give you the results, you know, a couple of weeks later. So I think, you know, we need to develop tests that are real time, you know, chair side, relatively inexpensive. We're actually developing, you know, a platform like that, you know, at NYU. So I think, you know, that is sort of the future, maybe salivary diagnostics, maybe other, you know, blood tests. There's uh, now blood tests, uh, the gallery blood test that tests for 50 different cancers. Now you've got to pay quite a bit of money. Your insurance company isn't necessarily going to cover that, but that actually does cover oral cavity and oropharynx as well. Now they're not perfect, but you know, this is probably the way of the future. The next thing I would say is dentists should go and hygienists should get advanced training in this area. I mean, I'm, I'd be happy to, you know, help direct them towards the American Academy of Oral Medicine. We, you know, we offer, uh, you know, CE in that area. And there are other people who do that. So that's another way of, you know, getting it more advanced training in this area. And it's not just about oral cancer, but it's an education about all of the other myriad of diseases that can occur in the mouth that are unrelated to the teeth and the gums. And then finally, it's interesting because the mindset of physicians is very different than the mindset of dentists. Dentists seem to be concerned about telling patients that they need to be referred somewhere. They should drop that. Physicians don't even think about it. They don't think twice about referring patients to their colleagues when they don't know what's going on. They just feel more comfortable having that conversation with their patients. And, and, and that is a cultural change that needs to happen. And it needs to happen at the level of dental schools. And, you know, it's hard because, you know, most dentists don't see much serious disease. This is really one of the few diseases that could have major impacts on, you know, on the, the, the lives of their patients. And finally, I would say that dentists, you know, struggle to be able to pack everything into a day. And so I think working with the hygienist, pass on this responsibility to the hygienist, let the hygienist do the opportunistic screening, train them to do that, and then present the findings to the dentist. So that might be a way of capturing, you know, more disease. I, I love that. I want to summarize it because as we close, I want to, I want to make sure that everyone who watches this gets uh, some take-homes that they can, you know, take back to their practice. So the first thing I heard you say is get trained so that you know what you're looking at. The second thing I heard you say is every patient should be examined, right? Every patient, although there are certain patients that have more uh, activities and a, and a history, every patient should be screened and examined. And then the third thing, which I thought was really, really insightful is everybody should get comfortable either in saying to the patient, why don't you come back in three weeks and let's look at this again, or I want to send you to the oral surgeon. Cause I do agree that part of the challenge for most dentists and hygienists is they're just not comfortable with that conversation. They'd rather say nothing than take the risk 
of having a difficult conversation with the patient or the other dental professional, the oral surgeon. So that's sort of the summary, right? Get trained, examine every patient thoroughly and get comfortable with the topic so that you can have a productive conversation with the patient and or with a fellow dental professional or physician about what you're seeing in the mouth. Can, can I add just a couple of little points? Please. So number one is, is that there are some fantastic resources available. And one of the best resources available is the Oral Cancer Foundation. So they have, first of all, a, a tremendous support site for survivors of oral cancer, but tremendous education um, can be had just by reading through a number of the different websites, uh, the web pages. So that's, you know, Oral Cancer Foundation, just Google that and you'll find, you know, a lot of great resources. The, the other thing that I will say is we talked about oropharynx cancer. And what's interesting is, is that there is a real spike in oropharynx cancers in the United States. So the curve is, is sharply rising and it will eventually come down when the population all gets vaccinated. So we do have an approved vaccination against oropharynx cancer. And it's, you know, kids from the age of nine to the age of 26 are eligible for this vaccine. And then it will take care of almost all of the, you know, the HPV subtypes. So there's now a vaccine that covers nine different strains or subtypes of HPV, seven of which are cancer causing. And so the, the statistics are that it's a three to one ratio men to women. And the men who get it are largely in their fifties and sixties and are affluent. So they're just the types of patients that are coming to the general dentist. And so it's very important that the exam includes palpation of the ne neck lymph nodes and trying to promote the concept that this is something that we need to be concerned about and heighten the awareness for this disease as well. So that would be you know, another piece that I would like to just, I would like to promote. Excellent. Dr. Kerr, thank you very much. Is there anything else you want to share as we close today's podcast? No, I mean, it's, uh, you know, April is Oral Cancer Awareness Month. Take an opportunity to open up your offices for, uh, you know, free screening or whatever. And, you know, as I said, if you want to get some materials and read up on it, go to the, uh, the, the uh, Oral Cancer Foundation website and, um, uh, and, that's it. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. Dr. Kerr, thank you very much for being here today. Our guest today was Dr. Ross Kerr, professor at New York University Dental School and an oral medicine uh, uh, expert, oral medicine, uh, uh, the correct term is you are a doctor of oral medicine. Is that correct? An oral medicine specialist. An oral medicine specialist. Thank you very much, Dr. Kerr. Great to have everyone here today and go out and find some cancer in the mouth. Thanks for listening in. Don't want to miss an episode of the Driving Dentistry Forward podcast? Subscribe today on your favorite podcast app.